0: Hello again, and welcome to another episode of Brave Spaces Roundtable brought to you by Include. I'm Dr. Dede De Tetsubayashi, your host for today, and here with me is Leah James. Leah, I would love to invite you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do. Thank you so
1: much for having me, Dede. De. Um, it's really great to be with you here today. Um, as you said, I'm Leah James, and I work with folks on how to create more inclusive spaces, um, generating conversation and uh, building those bridges between folks who maybe have different backgrounds, different experiences. And um, what I'm probably most often known for is helping people make really big changes in their careers
0: and finding spaces where they can show up fully. Can you tell us a bit more about what drew you to this kind of work and why you continue to do it and how it shows up? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, oh gosh, uh, my whole life,
1: I was a connector. I was known as someone who brought people together who wouldn't have maybe spent time together or wouldn't have naturally gravitated towards one another. Uh, I love people. And I mean, I remember when I was younger, um, something, someone telling me I needed a hobby and uh, my hobby was, but people are my hobby. Um, (laughs) and, and I, I do genuinely believe that like that is part of it. Um, But the way that it has shown up in my work over time is that I kept seeing instances where different folks were not included in conversations or their voices weren't heard or uh, assumptions were made about people that weren't in the space um, rather than just inviting them in and having those conversations or creating space for folks to all contribute to the conversation. And no matter where I've gone in my career, because it's taken some wild leaps and bounds, um, those sort of have threaded throughout my entire career. Um, So like, for instance, helping people find spaces where they can show up fully, that kept coming up because I kept finding myself connecting with folks who could not get a job. And a lot of times that was happening because of discrimination um, that was continuously showing up. And so... I committed to helping them figure out how to find places where they could show up and not have to worry about discrimination um, rather than trying to fit into the box so that they would remove the things that were discriminating or being discriminated against mm-hmm. find places where they could show up and not be discriminated. Like that's a very different experience.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then that led to companies then hiring me to help them build more inclusive hiring practices so that they weren't pushing these folks out um, that I was traditionally working with. So uh, I think that answers your question, but happy to elaborate. Yes,
0: Yes. and it also, it it reminds me of how we met originally. Like if you um, got into the work because you connect people, um, you and I met um, through Tech Ladies and you reached out, I was looking for someone to um, help connect me, um, help me uh, in my job search at the time and um, connected me to a bunch of people in California where I'd never been uh, in the event that I finally, you know, followed through on a plan that we were putting together.
1: <laughs> I love that memory. Cause I do actually forget that often because we've, you know, we've just, our, our relationship has evolved so much from like mm-hmm. work and collaboration experiences that yes. I love going back to that moment in memory. Um, because you and I never met in person right. for all the years that we've known each other until, just a, just a few months ago a few months
0: ago
2: yeah but
1: you've met so many people and befriended and deepened friendships mm-hmm. more than my friendships were uh with folks that I knew in California that I did originally connect you with but yeah I love that memory and I just remember reading you uh virtually for the first time and going oh you need to know this person and this person and this person <laughs> and I don't know if they have jobs but let me
0: tell you what they will help you with that job sir <laughs> Yes, it's been an amazing journey between the two of us i mean yeah. um seriously we we haven't had the opportunity to actually meet in person until literally a couple of months ago um and our work has intertwined, we've connected um we've leaned on one another, we've uh supported one another in all of our endeavors, and we just bounced ideas off of one another, especially when it came to equity and inclusion work. And so I think it's just fascinating that this continues. Um, and um, one of the reasons we actually were able to connect most recently was because of the direction that you're taking some of your work, which is related to the table talks. And I'd love you to, to tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, um, so I've had this dream for years that I would have a dinner series where I physically created a table Literally, physically built a table that I could figure, figuratively um, embrace building a table, right? Like um, the idea of you have to have a seat at the table to make change happen has always st- stood within my career and like directed me, right? And I um, I felt like I was always fighting to have a voice at the table, and I felt like I was always trying to fit into a space that I didn't really fit into, and that's discouraging. So, um, a few years ago, I think I was sitting around the table with a few different friends and they're talking about all these different, really like high profile projects and we're all collaborating with each other and, and at like making really wild changing projects or impact changing projects. And I had this realization. I was like, Oh, this is what it means to be at the table. Like mm-hmm. we're all hanging out on a Saturday night, talking about business and things that we want to do and care about, but like, that's also going to make all of us like money to be able to pay our bills and also fulfill dreams that we have and um and that's where i got the idea i'm i'm going to physically create a table because that's what i do for fun as i build furniture and then um originally before the pandemic it was supposed to just be in my home i was going to set up audio and video and bring people in to have conversations that have maybe a different perspective different lived experience different background and um create a a safe space or brave space to have really, um, hard conversations. Uh, so I was raised in a small town where I was exposed to very different socioeconomic classes, racial profiles, um, uh, people who are transient, people that were there that lived there, their full lives. And I think because of that, I have a lot of, different empathy for like conversations. Like I can sit with someone who I don't agree with and listen and, and like have a conversation about it. So my hope is that um, I can help facilitate those conversations because that's what I do in my everyday life. So fast forward to after the pandemic slash we're still in a pandemic. um, I needed personally to not be still anymore. And I personally needed to be on the road traveling as safely as possible where I'm not harming other communities in that in that way so I packed up my table I packed up all my woodworking tools into a trailer and I hit the road Um, and I made it out to you
0: right from all the way from
1: Baltimore (laughs) Maryland to Oakland California with a lot of stops in between (laughs) and we pulled the table out at your house put it in your in your kitchen and or your dining space and we had some really beautiful conversations around that table. Yeah. And I mean, you curated the group and it was just incredible, um, I think, to be exposed to all the different ways of thinking. And I think there are a lot of similarities and there were also a lot of us in different um, spaces in our life and experiences that helped yeah. create a really beautiful conversation.
0: And what's was amazing about that was that it was... We had planned to meet up and we planned to bring the table out at some yes. point, but we hadn't actually planned um, down to the granular level what that conversation or what those conversations would look like. Um, and the folks that we'd invited over to join us um, m- mirrored us, but also contrasted each of our experiences in really interesting and unique ways. right? And, each of the people at the table work to some extent um, with a focus on equity, even if that's not their specific title. Um, One of the people um, at at the table having the conversations with us was um, Mashika Allgood, who is a founder and CEO of Ally, right? Ally Consulting. And she's also been hosted on our podcast before. So really good friends. Um, Basically, we're all to tell you the truth, we're all just really good friends um, <laughs> trying to figure out how to support one another um, in this work. So, um,
1: but go that, ahead. What made that so interesting, though, is like, yes, we all work in some form of equity, but our backgrounds are so vastly different. I remember at one point just sitting at the table listening um, to some of the different conversations that were happening at the same time and feeling a little bit in awe. Right. Going mm-hmm. two years without having a lot of in person connections, slash, mm-hmm. for me, none beyond my immediate family. Mm-hmm. Um, to being in a room with this this group of people who just had really wildly interesting backgrounds that led them to equity in, in very different ways, which means we all came to it or coming to it with different perspectives, different ways of thinking, mm-hmm. and it was sort of beautiful to see how we built off of each other, right? Like Mm -hmm. there was a statement and then we would, we would all add on and we would yes and each other. Um, and if there was a little bit of a, I don't know if I agree with that. It wasn't an attack. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. um, a put down, like, Mm -hmm. no, you're wrong. It was Mm -hmm. more of a, I see you. And then here's my experience with that. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Which was, Mm -hmm. which I thought was so incredible.
0: And I think what we were able to emulate um, so naturally is what we try to do in the work with other folks. When we create safe spaces and brave spaces, it's about building those relationships and it's about building um, connections so that you can have those hard conversations compassionately, you know, even when it's uncomfortable even when it's painful, even when it's really difficult, knowing that on the other side is someone who's actually listening and taking into consideration your emotions and handling that with um, um, care, with care. I think and
1: your key mm-hmm. word right
0: there was compassionate and care, mm-hmm. right?
1: I think that's where we get in trouble is when yes.
0: we don't approach those conversations with compassion and care.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I think, that leads me to one of um, uh, the questions that I have is like, when you create a strategy for, for doing this work for, for a partner, a, a customer, um, however you, you name the people that you work with, um, what do you consider to be signs of a good strategy? And then what are signs when, um, if you think that strategy is doomed to fail?
1: Mm. Oh, that's such a good question. I am actually kind of dealing with this right now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm I'm muscling through it a little bit. So I think the things that I'm looking for is that the leadership that is leading the path, right? You have to have leadership bought in and truly, deeply understand why they're making this shift. Mm-hmm. That it's not just for looks or for um, to check a box, like it's, it's a genuine understanding of why they need to do it Mm -hmm. and commitment to it, no matter how hard it gets or uncomfortable it gets. Um, and they also have to be building with the rest of the team, right? Like it has to be done in a, um, participatory centered process. Um, so that, uh, so the problem that I'm having right now, I'll just say that so that it'll help as I'm like slowly trying to share the story mm-hmm. and not like say it. So the story that I'm, I'm dealing with right now is I'm um, helping a group of people um, rearrange a process within their organization, and reorganizing that process, their solution was just build it and we'll make everyone use it, and it, it doesn't it doesn't work that way, right? If they're saying that. They want their team to be more um, engaged and they want to feel like they're uh, attracting new candidates to come and be a part of this team and they want to stop bleeding the uh, their team members so much. Well, then we can't just build it and force them to use it. That's not the answer. That can't be the answer. Um, so in order to do that, um Instead, they need to bring everyone to the table. And if you have a large company that's like thousands upon thousands, thousands, you can't have everyone at the table, but you do need representation at the table in order to build it appropriately um, and in a way that people can engage with it. So um, yeah, that was a really long roundabout answer. Is, but basically, like I'm looking for is the leadership fully, genuinely bought in? Do they have people at every level of the company represented, and all of the different demographics that they are serving represented as well as does their team reflect the people that they're serving right like those are other things that they do have to take into consideration,
0: and I often see that piece missed out or mm-hmm. missing in it
2: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. that's a that's a great point because um, we often focus on internally we look internally at What's happening in the house, so to speak, like we have to fix our house or get our house in order in order to then be able to support others. And that's critical when we're working with organizations that are building uh, things and putting them out into the world or creating something that is actually touching and impacting folks around the world. Um, Mm -hmm. But so many programs focus only on hiring. Yep.
1: And they don't fully like and they
0: don't connect yep. to the rest of the organization, the overall organizational goals, and it doesn't connect to the relationships that that organization is relying on building to then be able to impact those communities. And none of the communities that they're impacting usually are represented in programs. 100%. I have two really
1: good examples for you. One client I have is um, a product that serves internationally. And they do hire internationally, but everything is centered around the U.S. So um, they do all of their trainings on U.S. time. They do um, any event on U.S. time. They do a lot of things that reference U.S. pop culture or U.S. Mm -hmm. norms. And I was actually coaching one of their um, one of their employees that's not U.S. based. And what she shared with me was we had um, an internal event that we were doing like a dry run for that would eventually be an external event. And in doing that, they were trying to make these like inclusive games and we're testing them and so that like, it also flows with their product. And she said, and it was so hard because everything that they did was U S pop culture. Mm
0: -hmm. And so
1: any of us who were not U S like did not grow up in the U S didn't get it. Like we didn't even, we couldn't even laugh at the jokes because we didn't get it like so over our head. And so like a large population of the team members couldn't participate. And so then imagine what happens. And when they go external, they're supposed to be an international product and they're not framing it for international engagement. It's, it's mind blowing, but it it happens all the time. So that's one example. The other example is I worked on a nonprofit Um, early in 2020, where we were building programs for um, youth employment. So like Mm -hmm. state-based youth employment programs, where it helps people get exposed to career opportunities at a young age, Um, especially young kids who might not go on to college or might not go on to a trade school or something like that. We actually hired youth to help us build out our programs. Mm -hmm. So we worked with, I mean, it's the most young people I've ever worked with ever. I usually do adult programs. So it's really educational for me um, and cool because they led projects. We hired them to um, test curriculum, help us write curriculum, give us feedback. And we paid them to also learn, right? We, we paid them for R&D because mm-hmm. adults make
2: mm-hmm. space
1: for like getting paid for R&D. So we gave them space to do research and development and Play, play with technology, play mm-hmm. with um different equipment, play with different concepts. And we used that and credited them in everything that we built. So mm-hmm. like that was a really cool experience. That was probably my very first experience doing something that um inclusive.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: um yeah, those are my two examples that
0: came to mind as you brought that up. And I, I love those two examples because they indicate how you're involving different, um, group members or different, um, if we're being technical, like functionalities, Mm -hmm. making sure that everyone is represented and providing some feedback as to how a program can be built to actually meet their needs. You're Mm -hmm. getting their input directly, um, from them. It's not second degree. It's not third degree research, um, it's, it's first degree uh, communication, right? Yeah. And that also makes me wonder in what other aspects have you had the opportunity to help people um, find their place in doing their work? So, for example, like um, grouping them by decision makers versus doers or change makers, leadership, um, volunteers, of course, like when change is happening from the ground up um, or um, uh, diff- differently by functionalities or um, by experience, as you were saying before, is this one of the first few times that you've been able to see that actually in play?
1: Um, I wouldn't, it is, so it's the, I would say it's the first time it was that inclusive, meaning that I think at every stage of the game, we were, um, everyone on the team was being very mindful of how we built and being very mindful of how we centered our problem solving. But it wasn't necessarily the first time I've seen that happen. It was just by far the most inclusive version of it. Um, I mean, I think what's interesting is almost every group that I've ever worked with struggles with identifying who goes into the leadership position versus who is, you know, a change maker and a doer and like where those assumptions come in. And one of the most common threads that I've seen is that when I go into work with teams on, okay, how did you set up this team? How did you get these people in place? Um, the person who's the loudest often gets put into a leadership role. And the person that's loudest is the person that usually feels the most comfortable being loud, because also loud can be mistaken as you are rude, you are disrespectful, you are, and those usually... From my experience, from what I've seen firsthand, those usually fall genderly and racially, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I know genderly is not a word, but I totally just made (laughs) up, and I'm okay with it. Um, So, you know, I see that happen and it it makes it, it really disappoints me, but it has been, it has been a constant in every group that I've worked with. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember this one group I worked with back in like 2017, they were trying to, Reorganized their team because they were bringing some new folks on and letting some other people off. And as I sat and I observed their team, they had these two uh, people who identified as men mm-hmm. um, in leadership roles. And then you had this one person who identified as a woman sitting in the back, um, like the back left corner. And then there was this other guy who, or person who identified as a man, who was like sketching and doodling, Mm
2: -hmm. but
1: not like actively contributing um, until certain points. Now there are other people in the room, but these are the four people that stay very true in my mind because they were key players. So the two people who were identified as leaders, they definitely facilitated, but they also facilitated a lot of tension and they facilitated a lot of um, uh, frustration and they were really Mm -hmm. good about stirring up drama and chaos. Whereas the other two who I mentioned, again, not the only people in the room, but these are the four that stood out, the uh, person that identified as a woman who was in the back corner, I remember her like very carefully at the end of each section where it was where she felt comfortable and safe to speak. Uh, she would recount certain things and she could like acknowledge, Hey, I noticed when this happened, this, this also happened. And Hey, I noticed when this happened, this also happened. And she started to bring everyone else into the room or that was in the room into the conversation. She -hmm. wasn't the only speaker. She just facilitated some of the conversation. And then the, the gentleman who was doodling similarly, when he spoke, everyone listened, like, it was really interesting to feel the energy in the space sort of like diffuse as he Mm -hmm. spoke, because again, he was able to like bring everyone into focus on what they're doing as opposed to, and the chaos that was happening by the two folks that were identified as the leaders. Mm -hmm. So it was really interesting. And I give that example because I see that type of thing show up pretty constantly. Um, We gravitate towards a certain kind of person that we identify as a leader But it's not those mannerisms or those characteristics aren't given the same value when you look at people who aren't showing up the same way that those two gentlemen were. Um, And so they were white passing. They were men from like middle class. um, They had come from a very prestige college. So they had all this studious experience or perception of experience. And so we trust them. We inherently trust them because society has told us to but they weren't the right people for the leaders um, for the leadership position. Mm -hmm. So we did reorganize um, those two other folks that I mentioned did end up moving up. One of them was a person of color. One Mm -hmm. was white or white uh, presenting. And so um, it was just interesting how the whole team completely shaped the Mm -hmm. dynamics changed drastically. Their outputs were better. uh, Their customer engagement was better. Their team dynamics were better, but I had the owner of the company deeply committed to this work and that Mm -hmm. that was part of what made it possible.
0: Mm -hmm. That that's an amazing um, experience to share. And I something we were talking about before, and I feel like this is brought us actually quite naturally to that is were the two people who were identified originally as leaders and facilitators, white presenting or white? Yes, yeah, and so then how how can we speak a bit more to how changing the placement, the focus, the focus yeah and decentering yeah. their experiences um. That was it could be an act of divesting from whiteness and and, um, white experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was a really hard experience to do that part of the process, um, because it was met with very combative reactions Mm -hmm. as we Mm -hmm. tried to do the Mm decentering. We also at that point um, didn't necessarily use those terms, but it was very clear that that's what we were doing. Right. And um because they weren't used to that, mm-hmm. that discomfort came out in aggression. It came out in a very like attacking way. Um, it came out in a very like victimized way. Mm-hmm. And it was challenging because that then damaged the, t- the rest of the team's experience through that process. Because you have some folks who are like, yeah, okay, this needs to happen. And then you have other folks that are like, why are you hurting my friend? Uh, what are we doing here? And like their fear over them and right. blocked their ability to also decenter. Um, what had to happen for us in that experience was the uh the founder of the company is a white identifying and a white identifying male and he had to lead a lot of that process and also like by leading i don't mean like he was front and center and like the focus i mean that he stepped back And he created space that was not white focused and he created space to talk about other experiences like they brought in. Actually, I thought this was really interesting. It might not be unique, but it was really interesting to watch. They brought in um, case studies of companies Mm -hmm. that they had um, performed well on, had not performed Mm -hmm. well on or missed opportunities. And they talked about they gave people space to say, if you were running this project, how would you run it and why? And uh, by doing that, it allowed it allowed it to um, see how do I frame it? I haven't told this story in a long time. So they allowed they allowed <laughs> for people to share their perspective and their lens that they would have problem solved with by um, sharing their lived experiences by sharing like the way that they showed up in their in the world, um, but not putting them in an uncomfortable spot to be like. This is how all black people handle this, or this is how all women handle this, or this is how, you know, like it, it allowed, or like, how do you feel in this situation? It was, hey, here's where I would have handled this, and this is why, and this is the impact that I think it would have had. Mm-hmm. And then they were able to dissect it that way. So I don't know if that fully achieves what, um, you know, the full decentering and the full um, remote, like decentering around whiteness, but I do know that. What it did was I, I noticed a few people kind of sit back and go, I would have never thought of that. Mm-hmm. And it was a, a way that they could safely share their opinion and their experience and um, feel empowered to do that and feel like they weren't going to be punished by having a different perspective. And I remember one of the questions towards the end of that exercise, um, one of the, the white presenting men asked, well, why didn't you share that when we were doing the project? And I remember the woman of color said, "Because when I did try to give my perspective, I was shut out immediately, and like it wasn't done in a like she said that, and it wasn't done in like a a way where it created a battle. It was more like,
0: yeah, yeah. This was this I tried it happened. And this was my experience, and yeah, you actually thought deeply enough to ask why." didn't this happen? Yeah. Earlier. And
1: and I mean, like, I can't say that that's happened in multiple of my other experiences. That was a really beautiful experience where the founder knew there, like this needed to change. And like, he was committed to being really uncomfortable. Um, and he did, he was put in some uncomfortable situations too. Like he definitely realized his, the role that he played in it as well. Um, but that doesn't always happen, right? Because not every leader is actually committed to that some leaders think they're just doing it just to be nice and they don't really get
0: the value out of that, out of that, that process. Right. And that, that makes me also want to ask, um, what, what type of leader do we need, um, Mm -hmm. in place to be able to do this kind of work to do, to do equity work well? Um, and is there an organizational structure that is fundamental to doing this work with, certain types of leadership
1: that's a really good question um i've been struggling with this question a lot recently actually because i feel like i've had some conversations recently that are a bit discouraging right like i think that the reality of capitalism the reality of the way that business is structured it's designed in a way where we care about the profits. And so if we don't see the immediate impact on profits, why are we going to slow down to speed up, right? So my whole thing is around like, let's slow down to speed up, let's slow down to speed up. And if they can't see the direct path from A to B, then they're not going to do it. And uh, that like narrow sighted, fairy tunnel vision leader is incredibly challenging. And I, I, I'll um, jump in a tangent for just a second. But I sent you a TikTok the other day uh, from a woman who I will look up because I do not remember her name, but I hope we can put it in the in the comments just because uh, she should she deserves this credit. Um, but so she talked about how leaders at a certain level should all have therapists. And as a leadership coach, she makes sure that they have therapists because if they don't, it's a red flag to her because her line that I think was the most impactful to this question that you're asking is that she said, when we're in really stressful situations or if we're in burnout, we don't show up how we're supposed to. We show up how we are at our core. So if you have someone who is in a leadership position who has never been in a, a situation of oppression or has never been in a situation where they have, they like personally care about about making these changes, they're going to react in their default. To your question about what leaders we need in place in order to make this equity work actually happen and actually stick, I think we need more folks who are more directly tied to the work. Um, We need folks that understand actually how that changes if we're going to stay in this capitalist world, which is a whole different conversation that we can talk about another time. Um, <laughs> but if we're going to stay in that, then you need leaders who understand that that actually can change profits. It actually can meet the bottom line. They can produce the thing that they want and they can do it so much better because they're poking holes at their product. This is the part that like, I love about having equitable environments is that you you can safely and comfortably like disagree with people, mm-hmm. right? You can mm-hmm. say, "Here's my concern with this problem," and you don't have to worry that you're going to be demoted or fired or anything else is going to happen because you disagreed with something. Um, wow, that and was a really creating... long roundabout
0: way to answer that question. No, no, and you're you're creating the environment within which um, you're inviting. Different experiences, um, whether that's um, learned experience or lived experience um, or acquired experience or, or lived experience, you're inviting the space to actually work with all of the people who usually are second. Thought or third thought, right? Um, and I'm not even sure if that's a term, but hopefully that <laughs> it makes is sense. Now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. They're not the primary concern yeah. um, when they should be. Their their experiences should be centered because um, when we work with them, we're actually asking the hard questions, like, well, how do you actually make this thing available to as many people mm-hmm. as possible in the ways that they will use it, right? Um, in the ways that it actually solves a problem for them. And if it's it's not solving a problem, why is it on the market in the first place? Why are we creating it? Right.
1: So a good example of that, uh, when I was talking about earlier, the nonprofit where we we hired youth to be a part of our team, we were working in a market where um, access to internet is like, the digital divide is very high. Sorry, I want to make sure I said that correctly. The digital divide is really high. And so I think, where we were, it's like 40% of families or households did not have access to the internet. Okay. So when we were building this product, it had to be built in a way that they could go somewhere to download it and then they could work offline and still like get all of the features. And so we had a lot of assumptions on how that would happen or could happen, but it was by way of having the young people who had that experience and who are in those situations that really changed the way that we built it. Um, And we built it alongside them about how would you engage with this? What would you do and how would you do it? And I think that lends itself to what you're saying too, like in order for, I think for businesses to be more successful and be more equitable, you have to like level the playing field. And that doesn't mean reducing your expectations or your standards. It's it means like change the way that you're looking at them. Um, that's part of why I started doing a lot around skills-based hiring, to reduce credential barriers, to reduce past experience barriers. There's a lot of transferable skills that um, come out of a lot of different experiences. Like I worked for a long time with a woman who um, did work at her local church. And uh, she ran a bunch of of community events and did a lot of project management. And uh, she was in a position where she needed something a lot more substantial. She couldn't do um, kind of like piecing together her career anymore. She needed something, but she kept getting rejected from stuff. And when we reorganized the way that she was presenting herself and like really talked through the tasks and talked through the skill set, she got a job in the tech industry like that and like doing something she loves with a team that appreciates her, right? But they had to be willing to look past the fact that her last job didn't say that she was a project manager, but she had all the skills for it. So yeah, you need those people in those leadership positions that get it and, and want to get it and want to make these changes.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that also connects to, to not only um, a leader who is willing to create the space for that opportunity to happen they mm-hmm. need to create the space so that um, those that are part of the ecosystem of the organization also understand yes. why this is important and that um, for example if, if it's if it's around um, hiring um, candidates to do a particular role it, we have to look at the way that job description is written in the first place mm-hmm. we write it in such a way that it is very, um, we like to say American focus and, um, merit-based and it's not like that system is made specifically for the benefiting white men, no yes. one else. Yes. And we continue to, to use it. These yep. These criteria that mm-hmm. are actually barriers to entry. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um,
1: the way we write those, I say that they're unicorn posts, right? We, we write it <laughs> yes. because it's looking for someone that doesn't exist. And then the person that applies is typically, like you said, the, the white man mm-hmm. who has been encouraged to do things that are outside of their comfort zone or like be a stretch for them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I used to think that stuff was not true, right? I used to think that wasn't, that's was not real until I became a career coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I had stats that you just can't deny. Like I had mm-hmm. stats on that, I had stats on what they were getting offered and I was blown away. Now that was back in like 2014 when mm-hmm. I started doing that work, but it's still pretty it's so, similar. Yeah, yes. it's really sad. Um, it's sad because, because there's so much proof that this needs to change. And there's so many avenues to make the differences. Um, and so what I started doing, this is a little bit against practice. And that I'll tell you some <laughs> cases where it actually is. It's interesting how different ways it's shown up. But um, I started teaching people how to get around the system. I started teaching people how to job search by way of making friends, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which obviously doesn't remove the process that's in place, even though I'm working with other companies on doing that. In the meantime, because it's going to be a long time before those things change. I taught people how to get around ATSs and how Mm -hmm. to get around the hiring system and make friends with people who are going to make jobs for you. Right. That has its own barriers, right? I also know that that's not super inclusive. But what happened was, because I generally work with women and people of color, is that they do get opportunities with people that they actually want to work with, right? Because they can weed off the people that are being rude to them, people Mm -hmm. that are being dismissive, people that don't give them the time of day. And then they find people who they vibe with. Now, that also has other implications because then you get people, generally speaking, who have the same mindset or same like way of working in the same space. And then we we have another issue internally. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But if it's not happening in massives, which it's not because I don't have that big of a range.
0: <laughs> I wish I did, but I don't. We also, we also already have data on um, the number of women and people of color who are in leadership positions, like who've actually been able to make it to that level to have significant yeah. enough power to hire others who look and mm-hmm. um, resemble them to match yep. the rates at which it's already been happening for Yes.
1: So it kind of has years, to happen.
0: 300, I mean, yes. how many hundreds of years? Hundreds of years. To, right. <laughs>
1: but what was interesting was I had, um, I had a couple of folks reach out to companies that are actually doing hiring right. And their response was, I'm sorry, we don't meet the candidates before they apply because we want to give everyone a fair chance at application. And I don't know the full inside scoop of those processes, but I've heard that they're really good hiring processes. Mm-hmm. like that they've done a really good job of removing as many biases as they can or, or recognizing them, right? And like calling attention to that process. Um, so I really, maybe this is my call out to companies that are doing that. Mm-hmm. I would love to research them and I'd love to mm-hmm. understand how they're <laughs> working because I look at their teams and they look like they are they have great representation of different um, different racial uh, communities on on staff, uh gender presentation, um maybe different backgrounds from like past careers, because yes, I look at people's LinkedIn's for sure. Um (laughs) so I mean I I, something's working, but I'm curious if it's really working
0: internally. Um but yeah that's how I teach people how to get around the system. That's that's a great call out and I'd be interested in finding out um if you know if we can connect with any of these companies that seem to to be getting it right and, and have a conversation. See, yeah. see what happens, what are they doing that may be working and could work long-term um, and something that could be sustainable. And if it's not sustainable, what can we do to actually support them to, to get to a sustainable place? Yeah. Um, but that, that is also leads me to another question. Like When we're talking about um, how to make changes and the type of structure that you need in place, the type of leadership, at least leadership mindset that you need in place, um, what other types of barriers have you um, experienced? And in particular, for example, what who have you found to be the hardest to convince or get on bar- board?
1: You know, no surprise here, but I'm going to take it <laughs> a little bit different direction. <laughs> so <laughs> Less of like who is the hardest to get on board because that I think there's a lot of articles about that. There's a lot of mm-hmm. profiles on that that are pretty consistent with what I find, too. But what I find the most damaging are usually the most well-intentioned people mm-hmm. who are like, I'm here for this. I'm doing this. And a lot of times they're the block. And I've been that person. I've definitely been that person. Um, and I found out the hard way. Like there were some certain things that I said in the hiring process. And I was really grateful that a colleague called me out on it and said, hey, you realize like this was the impact of your words or this was the impact of your actions. and um, that gave me an opportunity to adjust, right? Now that doesn't mm-hmm. always happen
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because what I have found is sometimes with the most well-intentioned person and, and I'll be specific, when I say well-intentioned person, more times than not, it's uh, a white woman or a white mm-hmm. man. When they have good intentions and they want to diversify their team or they want to build a more equitable team, um, their emotions do often get in the way. Mm-hmm. And when you correct it, it's usually met with some sort of reaction. Like you're accusing me of that. Like that's what I've built my whole career and life around. Uh, and so that makes it really challenging to adjust mm-hmm. behaviors or to influence a team to make these adjustments because they're so emotional about mm-hmm. their character being put into question because they believe they're doing all these things that are actually going to make a big difference. And in reality, they're, they're really harmful. Um, I see it happen a lot where people in those positions talk about groups of people very mm-hmm. like broadly and like, well, we're here to help them. And mm-hmm. it's like, hold on, roll that back. Roll that back, please. Like, do you know anyone from these from these groups that you are um, broadly stereotyping?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: do you actually know what you like what the impact of your work is or what you're trying to do. Like, how about it's not about you and what you are trying to do and open it up for other people to design the system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, that just kind of makes me icky sometimes when people talk about other groups Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in ways and like give them characteristics or experiences and you're like, I don't, you don't actually know that to be
0: true, Mm -hmm. right? My favorite is... Um, those who are well-intentioned and as you clearly called out um, who are also either white presenting or white uh, men and women um, well-intentioned um, have enough of a background to, to actually have conversation and um, around what it would mean to, to build for equity or equitable outcomes. And yet, and yet because a lot of their experience is Um, learned or acquired, they can make some really, really big blunders around Mm -hmm. what the experiences of other people who actually have lived through Mm -hmm. the work Mm -hmm. are coming to the table with. I, I absolutely love it when people tell me, oh, I don't understand what liberatory design is or like the concept behind it i'm i'm just i'm like i'm blown away and i'm like wait truly truly like because right now you're coming off as a missionary rather than someone who has all the intentions of having a conversation and listening deeply about what it is that these communities need that i need that my communities need instead of listening to me or anyone who is a representative of that community.
1: I'm so glad that you gave that
0: example. I was hoping that that would
1: come up. Um, (laughs) I really was because it's so, it's, it's so important. And I remember, you know, you, you, you helped me understand that just recently, right? Like I was using the word, the phrase human centered design, and you're like, hang on. Is that really what you mean? And like, can I break it down for you? Mm -hmm. And, and like, I mean, just the, the learning that happened there and also the realization, and I am not surprised by what I learned. Um, the fact that you are being corrected on something is like, what? I'm sorry. No, I, I don't know. It just, it's so frustrating to hear that happen. Um, so I've been trying to think about this story the whole time we've been talking because I think it's so relevant. So um, growing up, I had a group mm-hmm. of friends where I was the only white person in the group. I'm still really good friends with this group of friends from home. And um, back before the pandemic, I was sitting in their living room um, and we're talking about uh, different ways to do this table series before it like came to fruition, before I built the table, before whatever. And I was talking about how um, all these different things that I wanted to create and you know like my business ideas they just come out of the hat like this right so we're just we're sitting around we're talking about the table series and kind of having a table series except except the fact that we're all friends Mm -hmm. and i was saying how one of my dreams was uh to create um a tiny home community where Mm -hmm. it was specifically for uh women coming out of domestic domestic abuse situations and i said you know the concept it takes a village to to care for a family. And I, I was like, this is a great way for people to have ownership and part of them can be Airbnbable, and like they can own them. And this whole thing, I had this whole vision. Right. And one of the women stopped me. And she was in a domestic abuse situation years ago and her kids are a product of that situation. And, uh, she lives in mid to low income neighborhood Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and, um, I mean, she is one of the hardest working people I know and, and like actually just recently opened a coffee shop. That's like pace, like sliding scale, like the whole thing. She's incredible. And she says to me, she goes, I don't agree with that. And I have a lot of concern with what you're trying to create. Like you have good intentions. You have very good intentions and that like you want to do something kind for people that for whatever reason you're feeling your heart strings are tied to, but, um, What I would love to see instead is if you can put houses together that are a mixture of women coming out of these situations with um, high net worth folks, with low income folks, with, you know, like the old concept of like a mixed income neighborhood, but like she took it whole new level, whole new level. And she was explaining all these things. And she was like, and I said, like a mixed income neighborhood. And I, and like, I went on to say, as if she didn't know, um, this was like the very rude moment of me. I was like, you know, like in theory, they sound great, but like, they don't actually work because you have this like very big gap of people from high net worth that don't want to be in a low income neighborhood and a low income neighborhood, then or the mixed income becomes low income and And then what if you have people who are coming out of domestic abuse situations and they're around other people who are abusive and like, there's all these problems. And she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Here's another way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so she started talking about like the idea that uh, the way that it's approached right now is you're thinking very much of like what certain folks can do for other people rather than how it's a mutually beneficial situation and how like you can learn. Everyone has something to learn from each other. And the way she went on to describe it was so beautiful. And I, I use that often when I think about teams. And I, I use that often when I think about products and I think about um, how we're bringing everyone to the table to have these conversations. Like when you have someone who is like I did, speaking very broadly about a group of people that they're not a part of, building for that population of people because you think you're doing something really good for them. And obviously I had good intentions, but the impact of that, was not helpful. The impact Mm -hmm. of that actually was probably could have been harmful if I didn't have the right people around me. And the way that she was able to speak to her personal experience and what she wished she had been around and what she wished she'd been exposed to and what she wished she had had access to. And then also what she could contribute to the situation was incredible. And like, I mean, just changed the way that I thought about all areas that I show up in and learning Mm -hmm. how to stop Mm -hmm. talking when I shouldn't be talking and like let other like not let that's not fair but like back off when other people should be the ones building do
0: the deep listening yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. and be the partner when it's time to be the partner Mm -hmm. exactly
1: like support be the ally Mm -hmm. be Mm -hmm. like what can I contribute to to help out or is it nothing like is it just me just sitting here like listening and processing and having your back Mm-hmm. or are there
0: other skills that I can contribute to Correct.
2: what you're working on?
0: Correct. I love that example. Um, and I don't think it's as cringe as you thought it was, especially since, you know, you actually listened to your friend. Um, and thank goodness that you had a friend who felt safe enough to be able to, to share that it with you um, and that you received it well. Um, and hopefully this is something that can come to fruition at some point, but... At least you're able to have a conversation and and come to an understanding of, oh, you're right. Like, I don't actually know how to do this. Um, I haven't been in this situation, maybe. Um, And I should probably listen to somebody who has been um, Mm -hmm. in a similar situation. Yeah, Um, that that is. Such an important story and I love it because it is exactly what I try to showcase in the work that um, I do with Clue when we work with teams who are building, again, like products um, that impact people around the world. We don't think about people who don't have accessibility to that product um, or act. sorry. We don't think about people who have differential access to that product and how that access is different Um, And in what ways fundamentally that can hurt um, or harm them. Um, We don't think about how we can bring them into the conversation. And we already have such amazing use cases or case studies of building for people with the least amount of access. Like if we use the ADA, um, which is coming up on what, 30th anniversary, I want to say, 31st. I know um, yeah, something like that. Sorry, I was like, mm-hmm. I don't know the exact It's, it's an adult. <laughs> it's yeah, an it's adult. an adult. It's an official adult. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, uh, it, the, the, the changes that we've been able to, to make because of um, the, the ADA are useful for everyone. Mm-hmm. Everyone, not just people with disabilities. And yet when we do center people with disabilities, with differential access, with lower socioeconomic ability to to access whatever it is we're putting out into the world. And when we center those who are experiencing the most harm or inequity, then we're getting closer to building with everyone for everybody, right? Like there's just no way that we can ever build something from a place that's a silo as though humans are lone wolves or their own individual islands everything we do everything that makes us who we are is dependent on other people other cultures other languages and without that collaboration like who are we and what are we doing what are we doing
1: 100 percent. oh my gosh that was so beautifully said yes, yes 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 plus one to all of that um that's i mean remember the talk that you and I both have done around like being coded out. Like that's, that speaks to that completely. The more high tech we're getting, the more exclusive it's getting, the more people are being eliminated from the conversation and the experience. And um, I hope that we'll see that shift. I hope we'll see some people make some really drastic moves around technology and how they're building um, and centering people who are often pushed out of the experience, um, I think I think we have a lot of work to do to get there. But it's people like you who are doing the good work that are going to get us
0: there. My <laughs> 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 little traveling table. <laughs> Bring it on! Bring it <laughs> forth. We need the table. <laughs> Another table gathering, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so in in all of in all of that work, what we haven't actually talked about as much is data and mm. how important data is, how what it is that we're trying to achieve. like we create numbers around we use numbers to determine whether we're successful, but we don't necessarily use numbers from the get-go to determine what is it that we're actually trying to do in terms of affecting change. Yep. Whose information are we gathering? Are we gathering everyone's information equally, equitably, with privacy in mind? you know, of course, making sure that we're keeping people safe. But of course, like, when we're trying to hire, when we're trying to create a product, when we're launching a product, uh, when we're increasing or um, uh, inclusion and diversity in our ecosystem, we are starting from a place of lack or null. Mm-hmm. We know that, we recognize that, and yet we don't actually have enough information about who we're leaving behind because mm-hmm. we've left them behind. Right. And yet, and yet we don't think about how to actually start to bring in those folks Mm-hmm. Yeah. find out where they are like if they've reached out to us in the past at which point have we let them down or have they lost trust in us because we haven't responded oh we're those not. that information we are not capturing so for me I think capturing all that data is fundamental mm-hmm. to having successful DEI practices but I'd love to invite you to talk more about that like how has your been, your experience been with that?
1: Yeah. I, oh, my gosh. I'm so glad that you're asking about data because it's so important. Um, I mentioned earlier in our conversation that I didn't used to believe that these gaps really existed, right? Um, and I talk about that because it's 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 an important blind spot. And I've had this conversation with so many people since that they used to tell me, and I'll talk about how I learned that I was wrong. Um but I've had conversation with people since that say, well, if they belonged at the table, they'd be there. Like they would have the interview or they would like, if they had the credentials or they had the skills, they would be in the interview. They'd have the job and it's not true. And so helping people understand that, um, does take data. Data is challenging because especially right now, so many people are questioning data because you can make data, tell the story you want to. And so I think we need to approach it with a different lens when we do data. I don't know the answer to that, but I know there needs to be a different way. So like I was talking about back in 2014, um, where I was doing a lot of this early career changing work. Uh, I was working with technical boot camps, helping people come from non-technical backgrounds into tech, and I was helping them navigate getting the job. Um, So before that job, I did not believe there were as large gaps as there were in hiring practices, large gaps in salary offerings, any of it. I was just like, "Eh, no way. And then I got into it and the numbers are unreal. Like we tracked everything because we just did. And this was before we had a requirement to track these things. So we tracked everything and we found that like the, n- the number of men getting jobs after our program versus the number of women. And then you add on any other like intersectionality like with um, your race or your education background or your past experiences, your past jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, those numbers get smaller and smaller. And the offers, I had a really hard time believing that someone would offer one person something and then turn around and offer the same job, same thing for a much lower price, but it happened and we tracked it. Cause I looked at every single offer that came through to our students because they had to come to me, we'd talk about it and we'd like learn how to negotiate together. And um, if it weren't for tracking that, like I noticed it, I noticed the trend and I was like, that's weird. And then I pulled the numbers and, and I don't remember them now cause it's been since 2014, but I mean like large gaps, like there was like, I think, Men to women was like a forty or thirty five percent difference, like getting jobs over not and then I think um, black women I think were our our lowest for getting jobs and then I remember I had a woman who um was uh black presenting she identified as part of the lgbtq community and uh, her background was in a part of town, like her address and her, her like work previously. So even if she took off her address, they'd still see where she used to work, was in a part of town that was seen as like a crime-ridden part of town. So those biases came into play. Um, but, you know, if again, like if it weren't for the fact that we are tracking that information, I could have had these one-off stories for you, but I wouldn't understand how consistent it was and how consistent that continued to be and like when you report it you don't want it to look like it's your fault so I remember certain folks trying to tell the story differently or trying to find different ways to tell the story and trying to explain why it was this way and I was like no actually we just need to report it because this is this is bad and and like I'm not reporting it to point fingers. I'm pointing, reporting it because we need to make a change, and we need to do something drastically in order to make sure that this isn't continued. Um, you know why? Why do companies still not track their demographics and release their salary data? I don't think there's a surprise there. I think we all know why. Yes, I guess because they don't look good. they They don't look good. If you follow yeah. the TikTok or the Instagram or the Twitter threads where people are releasing their mm-hmm. salaries, it's pretty clear where the money's going and where it's not going and mm-hmm. why that data is super important.
2: Yeah. Why
1: it can change a, situ- a situation or a, um, a process.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And of course, then... Um, how that data is used is so vitally important. Mm-hmm. Who has access to that data is also really, really important. Um, it's, it's, I believe, necessary for many companies if they're not already collecting that data mm-hmm. to be able to do so, but hand it off to a third-party person so that, um, like you said, people aren't trying to use the data to tell a story that's not True. true. Mm-hmm. um or to tell a story that makes them look better um not necessarily because they're at fault it's not that they're at fault but it indicates that changes need to be made and if they're not ready to to reconcile with that then they'll play around with it to 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 tell a different story absolutely um, so i think it's it's really important for for companies to have um Someone external, an external party, who is gathering this information, and also doing it in a manner that keeps the people whose information is being gathered safe. Yeah, we don't want that information. Um, yeah,
1: yes. the The safety piece is, I think, a really key part of it. Um, so, okay. So, I'm primarily based in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. Baltimore is, I think, reported sixty percent black. I, I believe. And um, I was at a big industry event for advertising. Mm -hmm. And I remember afterwards they were saying how much more diverse it was from the previous year and how much work they had done and how great it was. And I remember thinking, were we at the same event? Because from (laughs) my angle, (laughs) I didn't see any changes. It was definitely predominantly white. And I think like it was, or white presenting, I'm sorry. Um, And I think I saw a handful of people of color and it was predominantly women. And it was, uh, I don't think I saw anyone with a visible disability. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that doesn't mean there Mm -hmm. weren't people there with disabilities, but with a visible one.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So I'm thinking, where are we getting our information? Like, how are we, how are Mm -hmm. we like, like basing this, this success, um, what does that look like? And I started asking these questions and I remember them being like, well, uh, uh, it just, it felt like, did you see this person or this person? It's like, uh-huh. But.
2: Interesting.
1: I was like, we need to start like, here's where tracking and actually setting metrics of what success looks like because mm-hmm. they had set out for this mission of diversifying this organization, diversifying the board and diversifying all these things, but they didn't have any meaning behind it. And Mm -hmm. they didn't have any metrics to track what that looked like. They didn't have like, nothing was like wrapped around it in order to actually track that change. And in a city where you have 60% black people and you, you did not have that same turnout at your event, there's an issue. Mm -hmm. And if you're not tracking so that you can start making those steps forward and so that you can start seeing that, that progress more than what your perspective thinks you're seeing. Right. Then like, there's not going to be change.
0: There never will be change because we're going to stay in the same spot.
1: Mm -hmm. You're
0: not forced to do anything. They're not forced to do anything. They're not forced to actually see that the way that they're hiring is, um, is a manner that uh, is just a repeating pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. Like they're hiring Mm -hmm. folks who look and feel like them, who could have grown up with them or who could be their neighbors or, a brother or a sister um or a family member. Mm-hmm. Um we we hire what looks and feels like us to us. We pattern recognize that's just who we are as humans. Right. Um, but yeah, being aware of that and then um taking the necessary steps to mitigate that propensity that we have as humans because I mean there's no really any other option because we can't 100% get rid of any of our biases we're we're cultured beings Um, but being aware of that is critical and then setting up the steps to mitigate what we would tend to do when we work in silos um, is absolutely necessary Yeah, could not agree more I love these
1: conversations
0: (laughs) me too now we just need a table In the middle. (laughs) (laughs) On the next podcast. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. (laughs) Leah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining today. Um, is there anything that you would like to share with us before we sign off for today? No, I just I really appreciate you having me and
1: it was a pleasure talking with you as it always is. And I'm so grateful to be connected to you and being able to be a part of all the work that you do and the impact that you have. And thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Looking forward to the next time, hopefully in person. Um, And that concludes this episode of Brace Spaces Roundtable. Thank you, everyone.